Mireille Duchot is, uh, is the author of three novels and um, many articles and essays in newspapers and magazines. Her first novel, Machines for Feeling, was published, um, was shortlisted for the Australian Vogel Award and published in 2001. Her second novel, Burning In, was shortlisted for the Prime Minister's Award, the Commonwealth Writers' Prize, and the Age Book of the Year Award. Her third novel, The World Without Us, the one that we're talking about tonight, won this year's Victorian Premier's Award for Fiction and was shortlisted for the New South Wales Premier's Award, that is the Christina Stead Award for Fiction, and the Stella Award. Mireille is a former editor of the highly renowned literary magazine, Heat. Please welcome Mireille to Mulaney. <laughs> Now, I wonder if we couldn't begin, rather than talking about books, just talk about you a little bit, just to kind of introduce you to the audience, and perhaps with some of your history. And one of the ways that I thought we could do that was through a discussion about the baking of bread. Now, I, I mean, I know this isn't a cooking show, but um, I believe that you've taken up the project or, over the last few years of, of making your own sourdough. Now, I, I wondered if you, if you could talk about how you go about that and... and the thoughts that come to you about your family through this process? Um, I'm laughing because before I came up, Stephen asked if I could bring some of my sourdough starter with me. <laughs> but having neglected it for about two years, I didn't think it was wise to, <laughs> to share it <laughs> with you. Um, and, um, and I sound way more wholesome than I actually am making bread. But, but I started making bread when my, after my second child was born, my son. Um, and he was a baby who never slept and, um, and I found that I just couldn't write when he was little. I mean, most, most women can't write when their kids are little, but um, his non-sleeping went on for quite a long time. And, um, and because I couldn't write, I still felt the need to sort of be making something and I started, I had this idea of having a go at making sourdough and so I made the starter and... Um, and I started making bread and, and I think at the time I was thinking a lot about my grandmother who had died after my daughter was born and about ritual and um, my grandmother was German Jewish and she came out to Australia in 1938 uh, from Berlin and part of her history um, was kind of erased by having moved from... Nazi Germany to Australia where she had to assimilate and kind of become Australian very quickly. It wasn't okay to be German, it wasn't okay to be Jewish in the 1930s in Australia. And she and my grandfather settled in the suburbs in Sydney where there weren't a lot of other Jewish people. So those of you who might know Sydney, a lot of Jewish people settled in the eastern suburbs. And um, I think, I'm not sure of the reasons why, but I think they felt it was safer to kind of not associate with the Jewish community because that had been such a source of danger in Germany. Um, but part of the process of immigration meant that any kind of rituals, any kind of family um, practices just became completely erased. And, and so I grew up in a family where we had no rituals. We had no, we weren't religious. Um, in fact, my mother never told us that we were Jewish, so we didn't really, I think I figured that out somehow when I was in my early teens. Um, so there was this sort of silence and this repression around that history. 
And I think when I had my own children, I suddenly thought, well, what, what are my rituals? Do, do I have any? What kind of secular rituals can I, can I practice when I'm not religious? And, um, and so bread making became this thing that I sort of took on and thought, well, I'm going to have a ritual. I'm going to make bread every week. And, and there's something wonderful about sourdough bread because you make the, the thing called the mother dough. So you make the starter, which which is kind of the source of all the future bread that you make and you keep it and each time you make sourdough you take a little bit of the starter and you mix it with the fresh flour and water to make the loaf. And of course there's sort of quite a lot of religious significance to making bread. Bread making is kind of embedded in quite a lot of religious practices. Um, there's the, the wafer which is a kind of form of bread. There's um, and in Jewish culture, there are a lot of rituals around bread making, um, including one way when you make challah, uh, a traditional bread, you, you pinch off a little bit of the dough and throw it into the fire, and it's kind of um, a gesture of um, uh, giving something back to... Um, it's like a dedicate, dedicatory act where you pinch off a bit of the dough and throw it away. So there's all these kind of rituals around bread that I looked into and, um, and I became quite enamoured of. And so I thought, well, this is going to be our family ritual. And my kids got into it because they liked to play with the dough. And, um, um, but I guess as I was doing it, I was thinking a lot about my grandmother and her story. And she was someone who um, was a bit of a hoarder. So she used to keep a lot of food in the house, um, which I think had a lot to do with growing up in Germany during a time of um, rationing. Uh, she was passionate about butter. So um, I start this, this, this all takes place in an essay that I recently wrote, which is why Stephen knows about my bread making. But um, when I went to clear, when my grandmother died, she had been in hospital for a time and um, after she died, we went into her hospital room to clear out all her things. And my sister and I opened up the little drawer beside her bed. And it was, and she had been saying to us in the hospital, they won't give me any butter. And she was getting quite upset about it. Um, and, uh, and when we came to clear out all her things after she died, we found this drawer that was just absolutely full of all the butter that had been given to her with each meal. And so she, she, wasn't, um, she wasn't an excessive hoarder in a kind of major way in her house, but certain things like butter had great significance for her. It, it was rationed in, yeah. in Germany. I mean, in the and novel Burning In, <clears throat> there, there's a character who I guess is based on your grandmother who keeps bread in her, in her handbag all mm. the time. Whenever, whenever, wherever she goes, there's always these loaves of, I mean, these small rolls of bread. Is, this, is, that, is that a fictionalised version of your grandmother, or is, that, is this also an aspect of your grandmother? Uh, Lottie, in, in the novel Burning In, is a very exaggerated version of my grandmother. My grandmother's, Lottie is quite a, a damaged character. Um, my grandmother was actually quite a resilient woman, given that all of her family were killed in the Holocaust. She was amazingly resilient and um, she was probably, she was very inspiring to me and um, she was also very, she had great access to her emotions in a way that my mother didn't. My mother was quite a sort of contained person and so I love my grandmother because she was so emotional but some of that emotion was intense and, and, and was grief-laden and some of it was just a freedom with 
how she was affectionate with me and my sister and brother. But she did, um, she did have a habit of keeping things in her handbag, which we used to joke about. So she would... Um, one time I came and picked her up from the airport and um, she... And it was early in the morning and I drove her home to her house in West Ryde in Sydney and she said, oh, I'll make you breakfast. And she pulled from her sleeve a, a bread roll that she had stashed in there during the flight. It was an an airline roll. She couldn't bear for anything to go to waste. So she had this bread roll up her sleeve. So she proceeded to make me breakfast from this roll. Um, and one time when I was in, I went to Germany with her to do, partly when I was researching Burning In, I went back to Berlin with her. And um, she showed me all the places she had lived and where she went to school. And one day we sat down and had some lunch in a cafe and she, she ordered um, pickled herring, which, she loved, she loved all the German salamis and stinky cheeses and, and as kids we were just totally disgusted by this but she, she, she ordered this pickled herring and she ate her, most of her lunch but there was some left over and she just proceeded to kind of grab the pickled herring and wrap it in a napkin and stash it in her bag for later. So she couldn't leave anything no matter how <laughs> smelly or, you know, she just, she was waste not, want not, yeah. So... I, I'm kind of mixed because I've read the essay and I've read Burning In as well, and, and there's so many consonances and resonances between them. I, I, I don't know where the, where the fiction ends and where the reality begins, but did, did your grandmother um, marry as a, a way of convenience for getting out of, getting out of Europe? Was that yes. correct? Yeah? Yes. So she was, um, in her stories, just the most sort of tragic love stories. She was in love with... Uh, uh, a man who was not Jewish, and of course this was forbidden um, after the a Nazis Gentile. came. Yeah. Sorry. So she was in love with with um, Herbert. His name was, and um, and I don't know how much of a relationship they had because she was sort of quite young, and and I I think that the way that she told stories about Herbert was so infused with nostalgia and sort of longing that it was hard to know what what had really gone on. But I know she lost her virginity to him at quite a young age in the swinging Weimar period in Germany. So she, okay. she was quite, she was an only child and she had a lot of freedom. And she was in love with this man, but then when, when the Nazis came in and the race laws were introduced, it was forbidden for her to associate with non-Jews, with Gentiles. And um, she was friends with my grandfather, but not in love with him. And as things became more and more, um, kind of, as it became apparent that it was going to be terrible to remain in Berlin, her parents had put their names down on a list to go to America, but there was no movement in that list. So this is the cue that never proceeds. And, um, and as it became more and more dire, my great-grandfather had gone into hiding. Um, my great-grandmother said to my grandmother, you know, you should marry George because he had tickets to Australia and that would be a way for her to come out. So they sort of made this arrangement very, very lightly. Oh, we'll get married and we'll go to Australia and then when all of this blows over, we'll come back and get divorced. And so it was a very sort of, you know... Um, it was saved her life essentially, but at the time they didn't see it that way. They just thought, "Look, we've got to get out now, but we'll come back and 
separate. But, but they ended up staying married for decades. They yeah. did, yeah. It wasn't a very happy marriage, but they, they stayed together. Um, they divorced, I think, when my grandmother... I can't remember the exact year, but once the children were grown, they divorced. Yeah. Um. Another, another one of those sad stories, yeah? Mm. One of the things about the books that I've been reading here is this kind of... There, there's a theme of loss throughout them, both in Burning In and in uh, The World Without Us. Mm. Is, does that, is that a, something from your family? Is that some... Are you, are you kind of constantly trying to... Is it like, you know, an amputated limb or something? There's some part of your family that's missing. Is that...? I, I think, like most writers, you don't necessarily even understand why you're drawn to particular subjects. They just emerge in the writing and... I mean, you know, there's that kind of cliche about writers that some of them write the same thing over and over in different forms. But there, there's definitely, um, I guess there's, I guess the things I'm interested in are often aftermath, ritual, repression and loss, um, but also resilience and, um, and how ritual actually sustains us when we have experienced loss or exile or... Um, a loss of a homeland, a loss of family members. So that's a big part of the world without us is, is how ritual can become a, a source of solace. And I guess my bread making was <laughs> kind of a ritual that gave my life some rhythm when it was pretty chaotic. And yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I'm also curious about where you set the novels because, I mean, we'll, we'll get to work with that in a minute, but I'm just going to still kind of chronologically through your career a bit. Burning In is... You set largely in New York, and then and also Berlin as well. Did you did you live in New York for a time? I mean, is that or did you just spend a lot of time on Google Street Maps? You know? <laughs> uh, I travelled to New York a couple of times um, and spent some time there when I was researching the novel, but I've never lived there. Oh, really? No. Okay, because you, you do you do come across as a as a New Yorker really for a long time, there, you know? Yeah, mm, I guess I. I'll take that as a compliment. You can take as a compliment. Yeah. <laughs> um, but but part of burning in is about an, a, an Australian woman whose mother is a Holocaust survivor, and she goes, she sort of leaves this intense relationship with her mother to to go. She's a photographer, and she goes to New York, which is, you know, sort of mecca for for art photography, and and wants to make it there. And so she goes to live there um, and has a child there, and. Um, and some of it's set in Berlin where she eventually goes to sort of find out something about her mother's past that has always been quite unclear. And photography is a medium through which she sort of both discovers her mother's story and also develops her own way of representing loss, I guess, and, um, and the loss of that history and culture. Yeah. And, and there's a kind of an interesting little kind of technological thing happening there too because she's using um, darkroom photography all the time. We mm. haven't entered the digital era at this time, so that the yeah. book, even though it must have been written when digital cameras mm. were already there, you're, you're, kind of, you're harking back to a period where, where you had to actually kind of, you, you had to develop an image in chemicals, yeah? Yes, yes. Yeah, uh, because I just, I think the darkroom is just such a fantastic place for discovery. I mean, the pro for any of you who've developed photos in a dark room, the process is so magical. It's, there's nothing like it. Um, and to see an image sort of float up in the, in the water bath that you put 
that you wash your um, photographic paper in to see it sort of emerge from this sort of ghostly fog and become sort of come towards you is just such a I don't know it's a magical sort of experience and so um, and I was interested in a mystery in this novel and um, and to me there's something quite mystical and mysterious about that process about being able to manipulate the chemicals just the right way so that you get the perfect image and yeah and, and the process of burning in is this process where you can kind of highlight a a particular level of light in a black and white photographer is that for photographers that right I, I'm, I'm not quite yeah sure. so it's a way of manipulating what's in the image so you can draw things out of an image and, and there's been some instances instances where um, images that are quite well known have been the negatives of those images have been um, developed again in the darkroom and new features have emerged from the image that weren't there in the original because they were um, kind of blacked out or through that process they were um, obscured. So I was interested in how I could use that as a way to kind of bring forward something that had been hidden. Um, so it's a good metaphor for, for history yeah. and memory and, yeah. And, and in this new book, you've moved from New York to some kind of fictional landscape that's either back of Bellingen or back of Lismore or... Or it's back been... of the Sunshine Coast, or you know, <laughs> and, and and a woman who has lived on um, a commune of some kind. Yeah. So, we, did you? Is that is that also part of your experience, or is that something that you're once again fictionalizing? Um, fictionalizing, and um, yeah, I, I deliberately. Lots of people try to guess where it's set, and um, and each festival I go to, I when the novel first came out, I. Um, the first festival I went to was Byron Bay, and so the obvious question was, is it set in Byron Bay? And um, But it, it, I, I wanted it to be... I didn't want it to be set in a real place. I wanted it to be a sort of floating world, quite dreamlike in a way. I mean, it is a realist novel, but... Um, so I've invented the place, but it is a rainforest town, a northern town um, and uh, in, in Australia on the east coast. And um, so it's sort of a blend of, of, of a few different places. Um, and I sp did spend a lot of time in Byron Bay when I was writing the novel and driving around that hinterland area. So it's sort of an amalgam of a few different places, yeah. Mm. Would it be good to, to read a, a passage mm -hmm. from the book just to give everyone a bit of a flavour of it? Okay. Do, you, do you have one picked out? Yeah, I was going to read something later in the book, but then I thought some of you wouldn't have read it. So I'll read a bit at the beginning, which just gives you a sense of the world that that it's set in. Um, so just to introduce the novel, it's um, at the centre of the novel is a family, they're a beekeeping family. Um, and when the novel opens, their eldest daughter, Tess, hasn't spoken for six months. So there's this sort of silence at the heart of the family and we don't quite know why. And her mother, Evangeline, um, has a past on a commune that used to be in the mountains on the edge of town. Uh, and it moves between six interconnected characters, so we get six different perspectives on the story. Um, and the bit that I'll read is from the point of view of Jim, who's a teacher that arrives in the town from Sydney, and he's just encountered Evangeline, the mother, up on the mountain. He was halfway down the lane when he saw the bee. 
It was steering haphazardly but following the line of the road, probably from the Muller's apiary, the same ones, he guessed, that haloed the tangled mounds of lavender outside his cabin, Apis mellifera. And in the stretched seconds of the bee's approach, he was struck by this transit of pollen and nectar from his small garden across and down the lane to the Muller's hives and the bright lofty home with those ethereal daughters and the candlelight by which he dined one evening and after admired the framed pictures by the middle girl Meg and some abstract oils by Evangeline, who'd painted so keenly, Stefan Muller had told him, for five years after the commune. She'd had amnesia, he said, after the fire. Painting helped reassemble the past. The girls had led Jim out to their mother's studio. See this, said Meg, plucking a fine paintbrush from a jar. Mama made it for my baby hair. And this one's from Pips. And then she'd gone silent and the sisters left the room while he stayed another moment to gulp down details, half starved of such rituals. He'd forsaken his own painting since Sylvie and the pregnancy. Evangeline's canvases were draped in white sheets. Whether they were being protected or hidden, he could not say. He'd peered beneath the fabric covering the largest work. Go on, feel free, Stefan had said, coming up behind and startling him. Have a good look, friend, I don't mind. But lifting the sheets on the wife's paintings while the husband stood by with an incomprehensible expression was just too weird, so Jim had walked out to where Tess and Meg were hanging from the massive Morton Bay and switched into teacher mode, asking them something anatomical about bees. The woman's paintings with their ankylous forms, horses, trees, hills, water, were technically flawed, but the flattened perspective, the naive style, and the tension produced from her rapid small brushstrokes were compelling. They had a peculiar, elusive effect. Recalling these took him back to the mountain, to what she'd said about time being abstract. This was in her paintings, disparate events, layered and revised. Despite their losses, the Muller's home was captivating, like certain lived-in houses Jim had visited as a boy, the kind of home where you lose count of how many rooms and how they lead on to each other. It was bright, cluttered and unkempt, but still essentially clean. In his childhood home, everything had been slotted carefully away. In the mornings, the emptied coffee-scented expanses of hall and lounge, his mother and father at each end of the bespoke table, turning and turning their pages. In his home, bare surfaces had so reigned that others acquired a slightly, that objects acquired a slightly shameful aspect, intensified by how they were secluded behind nifty sliding cupboards. The eye was tricked into thinking there was nothing when there was plenty. It had bred in him a lifelong unease about possessions and what they could mean. He heard a loud droning, that bee again, hurtling directly towards his head. He'd been too sheepish to tell the Muller family after dinner that night as he'd retrieved his bike from the back of their house and the sisters came running to stack his arms with jars of gold leatherwood. How could he have said after Stefan had offered 
Next time, we'll give you a tour of the hives. James Matthew Parker, 32, object of heated town speculation, teacher at the River School, tall, motherless climate pilgrim from Sydney, out of touch with his high-flying father, ignoring calls and messages from Sylvie, deliberately unwired and incommunicado in his leaky rental cabin, perpetually hungry for something and only just realising how lonely. How could he say, I am fatally allergic to bees? Thanks. Thank you. Uh, you, you mentioned uh, one of the ma other major characters in the novel there, which is Evangeline, right? And she's an artist. And I heard you uh, in, uh, I think it was actually even just talking to Annie Gaffney a couple of days ago, you said that she wasn't really a very good artist. And, and I, I liked that. I kind of liked that, that this major character in the novel wasn't going to turn out by the end of the book to be the greatest new artist in Australia, that she just was somebody who actually painted. Mm. But you also use this rather kind of interesting expression to describe her, which you said she uses art as excavation. Mm. And I, I just wonder what you meant by that. It was such an interesting phrase. Well, she's, um, she, she has a past in this failed commune that um, she grew up in, essentially, that was on the edge of town in the mountains. And um, something happens to her there that she can't remember. Um, and so she's quite, when the novel opens, she's quite a sort of, um, she's sort of lost her sense of self. In fact, in a way, her upbringing in the commune meant that she never really understood who she was. She didn't develop a sense of her identity. And um, her painting is, um, well, the, she starts painting in the commune and um, someone kind of takes notice of her work in there and that's exciting for her, but they actually use her in a way that's quite damaging, and I won't give that away because it's part of the, the mystery. But, um, but she, she continues to paint when she moves down into the valley, and painting is for her a kind of way of scraping at the past that she can't remember, so that's what I mean by excavation. It's, it's, it's like she's trying to kind of... Um, bring to light something that she can't access in her own memory. So it's sort of pleasurable and essential to her psychological survival, but it's not, it's not about sort of exalted creation and, and exhibiting the work. It's a very private act, which, which I think essentially all creativity is until it emerges into the world that there is something that we need from creating, whether it's writing or painting or photography, um, that there's something essential to our psychological survival that takes place in that act of creation. And maybe that was the bread making as well in a strange way. But, but so for her, it's, it's, she can't do without it, but it's not about displaying her work to the world. And so it has a different function. I'm always astonished as a writer myself that, that I go to work every day and sit there and have terrible terrors about the fact that nothing is happening and I don't know what's going to happen next and it's all crap and all the rest of it. And then at the end of the day, something has appeared mm -hmm. that I didn't know was there before. And it's that mystery, I think, that keeps me doing it yeah. every day, really. Yeah. If, it didn't, if that didn't happen, at least some days, I don't think you could keep going. Yeah, it's, um, it's, 
There is a mystery in that, and it's, it's creating something out of nothing, it's creating order out of chaos. I mean, I find for me writing is sort of self-regulation, like I can't... I think that's why I started making bread, because I still had to do something with all that stuff in my head, and at least that way I could kind of, you know, physically create something, even if I couldn't sit down and write. Um, so there's, there's a part of writing that is that is essential as breathing to me. It's, it's, not, it's not really a choice um, because we'd be mad to choose it because it's so difficult, but yeah. 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 So the other thing you were talking about um, recently is this word, is there's a neologism, right? like a, a made up new mm -hmm. word that called solastalgia. Is that how you pronounce it? Is that solastalgia. Solastalgia. Do you want to talk to that, mm. what that is? Because you, you, you've said that this book is really about that in some way, or, mm. or part of it is about that. Yeah. yeah. Um, well, part of, part of where the novel's set, um, part of the story in the novel is, is a loss, not just within the family, but a loss of um, familiar landscape, familiar homeland. So the surrounding area to where the family live is being mined um, and the trees are being... Um, taken off the mountain and the mines have been set up around the place and so there's pollution, there's environmental destruction and I, I guess what I was interested in about that and about sort of putting this climate change story into the novel was, um, was what happens to our sense of belonging when our homelands become unrecognisable. So, so when we don't recognise a place we grew up anymore, for example, because it's been so devastated by development, um, what does that do to our sense of feeling at home? Um, and when I was researching this aspect of the novel, I came across the term solastalgia, which is a word invented by an Australian philosopher called Glenn Albrecht. And he was doing a lot of work in communities that had been destroyed by fracking. And, um, and he said, you know, we, there isn't a word to describe this feeling of homesickness in your own home. We have to invent a new word for this because suddenly we're living in places that we don't recognise as homely anymore. And so he invented this word, solastalgia, which is a kind of combination of solace and nostalgia to, to describe this sense of kind of... Um, uh, pain and sense of loss that we feel when we kind of look around and we don't recognise a place that we might have grown up in and spent our entire lives in. Um, and so, and he talks about how, you know, it's, it's not a new feeling. So, for example, for Aboriginal people, it's, it's, um, it's an experience that's been ongoing. But for people who are suddenly seeing their landscapes change through man-made destruction or through climate change, this is a new experience. Experience, um, and so, so I was really interested in that idea of homesickness in your own home, and how do you make something homely when you don't recognise it anymore? And that relates to the family as well because they've lost a child. So, for the children remaining in that family, it's about how how can we feel at home in this house that once contained another person and now doesn't. Mm. Yeah. One of the troubles, though, about novel writing is that you're really not permitted to talk about big ideas. You know, it, it's, I mean, Hemingway summed it up most beautifully when someone asked him what his novel meant, and he said, if I wanted to send a message, I'd use Western Union. 
but it's, it's that. So, so you know, you've got this. You've got your readers. Um, they're willingly giving you over, giving their time over to you in a way they don't do to almost anybody else anywhere else in their lives, and you, you can't lecture them, right? Yes. But at the same time, there are these really huge, pressing political political uh, issues like climate change that somehow as a writer you have to address. How, how did you, what did you do when you were faced with that? Mm. Um, well, I think you, st you have to bring it back down to the human level. And so, you know, I, I think for me, I find it easier to talk about ideas because I'm fascinated by them and, and, and that's part of my research process. But, you know, another perspective on the novel is uh, someone like Andrew O'Hagan says the novel is a living organism of ideas. And so it's like this sense that the ideas are kind of embedded in there, but it's alive and how you make it alive is through the human stories that you create to kind of embody those, to, to kind of engage with those ideas. And, I mean, with climate change, this novel has been called Cli-Fi, which is a term that I really <laughs> dislike. There's a neologist that we can live without. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and so it has been called a climate change novel for, you know, marketing purposes, I guess, or by some reviewers, but I didn't really see it that way. And I don't, I don't feel like I have a message at all. I'm just interested in talking about what's happening now to us um, in how we live. Um, but um, but there an article I read about talking about writing about climate change said something interesting about the different ways that novelists have engaged with the ideas. So you have people like Barbara Kingsolver who writes sort of quite overtly um, uh, about all these issues, you know, she often has a scientist who will elaborate on these questions around climate or particular things that are happening to the landscape. Um, and then you and, have and people like Cormac McCarthy who writes The Road, which is a dystopian, you know, the, the world has been annihilated and there's nothing much left. And, um, but the interesting thing that I found in this piece by a woman called Sloane Crossley was she was saying that there's kind of a distinction between the way men write dystopia and the way women write dystopia. And she, she'd looked at a few different novels and she said, you know, men are often writing about the battle for survival. So it's about kind of, you know, fighting for the last bit of bread and having some sort of um, kind of physical battle. Um, there's often violence. Um, and she said that women writing about this material are often more interested in, what she said, they're often more interested in memory than dismemberment, which I thought was, you know, they're interested in the psychological aspects of that experience of living in a time where things are falling apart. What does that do to the inside of you rather than how are you going to battle it out for that last bit of bread or, um, yeah, so... So I, I thought that was interesting because I think that's, for me, that's my focus and that's how I make the ideas human is to think about what does what's happening to our world around us do to our psychological selves? How do we, how do we cope with that? And for this family in the novel, beekeeping is really central to their keeping it together. It's a ritual. They go out every day to the hives and... Um, there's some solace in that constancy of keeping the bees. Um, and, and in fact, you, you did 
researching the novel, you, you came across this, this man, Maeterlinck, yeah? Mm. And, and you, the, each kind of chapter is taken with a piece of... Do, talk to us a little about Maeterlinck. Mm. I mean, I believe that Maeterlinck is, in fact, Maurice Polydor Marie Bernard Maeterlinck. Is that, is that the one? <laughs> He's a Belgian philosopher. <coughs> um, he wrote a book. He was, he was a Nobel Prize-winning writer, and he... He wrote several, he wrote plays, he wrote um, philosophical tracts and he wrote books about animals. So he wrote a book called The Life of the Bee, which I stumbled across when I was trying to do, find out more about bees and beekeeping. And it was written in 1911 and it's the most extraordinary piece of writing. I thought it was going to be a kind of manual for keeping bees, which in some ways it is, but it's philosophy, science, poetry, um, there's no kind of, uh, you know, he's writing at a time when those disciplines weren't all separated from each other, so they're all blended into the way that he writes about bees, and it's the most extraordinary piece of writing. Um, and so when I read that, I just was struck by how he thought of the bees as a kind of model for the human community. And so he talks about them as a kind of ideal model for society. And yeah, I just found his, his work. And, and, and this commune that Evangeline grew up in is somehow kind of modeled on that? Is that, is that I mean, there's a kind of, except there happens to be a man at the center yeah. of it. <laughs> Yeah. Having sex with lots of young women, um, as opposed to a queen, but you know, they, they, but at the same time, there is that kind of idea going on there. Yeah. Yeah, and I think I mean again, sort of like Evangeline's painting. It's a sort of um, you know very kind of amateurish version of 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 an ideal sort of aspiration. So the commune was called the Hive. And it was supposedly modelled on this bee community and everyone would work for the good of the group. And I mean, there's a saying about the bees, a Latin phrase, una apis, nulla apis, which is one bee is no bee. So this idea that you can't exist on your own, you have to have a community around you, which I think is it's really fantastic <laughs> kind of idea. And it's, and it's true to some extent, but this, this commune was kind of modelled on this idea of sort of um, selflessness and working for the good of the group, but actu in actuality, of course, there was a leader who was lazy, and and most of the other people did the work, and he kind of reaped the benefits. But that takes place in the past. I didn't want to focus on that too much because it's been done so much in literature. Um, but yeah, I just found the bees. Um, yeah, I mean, even even the the image of the beehive to me was like this miniature society and at one point Tess, the eldest daughter, goes out to the hives and she sees her father smoking the bees, which is where you pump smoke into the hive to calm the bees before you open the, the lid of the hive and so even that image is like a little kind of, the beehives look like a house and there's a little sort of cloud above the house of smoke and so I just thought they were wonderfully symbolic and um, fantastic to work with, and so I threaded them throughout the book, mm. yeah. I mean, it was interesting because you, you, your research into Maeterlinck set me off to have a look into Maeterlinck too, and he actually had a kind of, went, came, came to a bit of a bad end, didn't he, really? He was a kind of, a, he, he got the Nobel Prize for Literature in 1911 or something like that, but in 1940, I think it was, he, he, he 
plagiarized somebody's book completely that had been written in Afrikaans oh. or something and then um, wrote it as if he had written it and, and uh, it became an, a, a worldwide scandal which oh. he apparently kind of I didn't know about relished that. in. Oh, no, I just want to keep my image of him pristine, <laughs> thank you. I did I, read I, something. I, I, was, I was in two minds of whether to mention this or not, but, no, but I, I thought he was kind of a terrible cad in his later life. I think you know, his, his ideas dried out, sort of ran out of ideas, so he started stealing other people's or something like I did that. read something about how he went through a period of depression and he was living in a French abbey and he and his partner or wife she was a, an actress who acted in some of his plays and I did read something about how he, during this period of depression, he used to roller skate around the French Abbey, which I just thought was <laughs> fantastic. So I'll just stick with that image as my... Yeah, no, that's, that's bad. I, I, shouldn't, I shouldn't have mentioned anything bad about him at all, really. No, but... Um, so, look, what are you, what are you doing now? Are you, a new project? Yeah, I've started, very tentatively started writing the next book, which sort of does go back to some family history, but in a different form. Um, I, I, one of my grandmother's stories that she used to tell me about different relatives was about one of her cousins who was deported when she was 16 from Berlin. And um, she survived the Holocaust. She was in Theresienstadt and she was in Auschwitz and she ended up in Israel. And my grandmother, um, had been to Israel in the 60s because my mother was quite a talented runner and she'd gone to the Israel games as a sprinter. And so my grandmother and my mother went to Israel in the 60s and I remember saying to my grandmother, did you visit Renata? And she said, no, she wasn't. When she came to Israel, the relatives heard that she had survived but she never wanted to be visited. And the story that my grandmother told about her was that it was because she had been so damaged by her experience that she either deliberately cut off contact with the family or the family decided that it was too difficult for her to kind of to see them. And I just remember this story from my childhood and being really confused about why you would never want to see your surviving family. And so... I started looking into her story and I knew nothing else about her. I had no photos of her. I only had this fragment of story from my grandmother. So I wrote to the International Tracing Service um, and gave them what details I had about her. And many, many months later, they sent me a sort of dossier of documents which gives me the facts of her life from when she was deported at 16 from Berlin with her parents and every single camp, and she was in many, many camps um, that she was in, including several displaced persons camps. And, um, and I, so I have all this material about her and I think that I want to write about her, a fictional version of her. She's now dead. I found out her time of death, her place of death in Israel. But, um, but the period of her life that interests me is the displaced persons camps because I think that's a part of that history that I haven't read a lot about. It was sort of overshadowed by what came before and what came after. So it's this period of limbo between the Holocaust and the new life in the new homeland because most people that survived were placed in countries that weren't their country of origin. You couldn't go back to Germany. There was nothing to go back to. 
Um, and so she ended up in Israel. But the camps that she was in after she was um, liberated from Mauthausen, she travelled like a lot of um, people who came out of the camps travelled into Italy and there were a whole series of displaced person camps, persons camps on the coast of Italy. And, um, and I just know nothing about them and I'm really curious about what, what happens in that several years where you're sort of in limbo, so you've lost everything but you're looking forward to your new life but you don't know what that's going to be. And what I've read about them, they, a lot of people spent time in those camps both just physically recovering but also they were being trained because a lot of the younger um, people who'd gone through the camps had absolutely no training in any kind of profession. Their childhood had been spent in the camps and so there were all these training centres set up to train people to be um, furriers or seamstresses or you know metal workers um, and there was a big push for people who were going to settle in Israel to learn to agriculture to, to farm the land and so she was there for several years on this incredibly picturesque south coast of Italy um, and I, I'm just curious about that time and I think it's extraordinary I've got these documents about her I have no photographs of her but I have I have a description, because the Nazis were so meticulous with their record keeping, you know, everything I know about her is because they kept such meticulous records, which is incredibly disturbing. But at the same time, this prisoner card, for example, I have of her tells me her eye colour, her weight, her, um, her shape, which was slim, which is hardly surprising after coming out of concentration camp. But it's very strange. So they documented, you know, her... So I have all her physical details from this prisoner card, but I have no photo of her. And so I've, I'm sort of reconstructing her from documents that the tracing service sent me and trying to figure out how to bring that story to life. And, and when you finish a project, like when you finish The World Without Us, do you, do you take a break or something? Or do, you, or do, you just, do you have to have a new project up the next day? You know, I, I remember reading about Thomas Mann that he finished, he wrote from 8 in the morning till 12 midday every day without fail. And he finished a book at 10 o'clock, so he started the next one at 5 past 10, you know? <laughs> well, I'm way lazier than that. <laughs> just, no, I don't, I can't. Um, I think when this book was was in production once it had gone to print. Um, I did go on a retreat and for two weeks and I started this new project because um, I felt like I needed to have something to come back to because I knew that I'd be talking about this book for a while and I thought if I didn't get something down it would be really hard to sort of... I don't know, I felt like I had to kind of get started on something and have it sitting there, but it's very rough and it's just sort of, you know, fragmented, but yeah. Well, look, let's, let's throw it open some questions and see, if, see what we've got. Does anyone, um, we've got a roving mic here. We are recording this for a podcast, so, um, so if, you, if, if when you, my wife's walking around there at the back with, um, with a microphone, wait for her to come to you, please, before you speak. Thank you. Do we have the roving Does mic? Hello. Hey, thanks for all that. Um, particularly enjoyed your talk about the lady in Israel. That was fabulous. But what I'm interested in, there's a, a number of phrases you mentioned. One was psychological survival. 
Another one is, 1B is no B, but you said to a certain extent. You talk a lot about your family history, but you, the only mention of your mother was she wasn't the emotional type. And I'm just wondering if there's, there's obviously a lot of family history and with the Holocaust background, um, with, with those comments, they stood out to me. And I was just wondering if there's something in there that's driving your writing and your research and the, the voyage of discovery within your writing. Uh, I suppose, um, I mean, one of the thing, things I found about my grandmother, when she, she was alive, she used to say to me, you've, you've got to write it all down, I can't do it, you have to write. And, um, but when she died, she left all her notes and her diaries and photographs to, well, she left them all and, and I've got a lot of them. And I realised that she actually did, she didn't write for publication, but she just wrote obsessively. And, um, and she would send, you know, I have um, those kind of old folders with the um, ring, ring binder folders that are just, I have several of those that she's dated um, for a period of years in which she's kept every single letter she ever sent to anyone carbon copied that she, you know, when you used to use the typewriter and you made a carbon copy, so she'd keep a copy of the letter she sent and then she'd file the one she received in return. But there were also a lot of just fragments of um, notes that she took that were just sitting in different parts of her house and, you know, she often in her later life when she couldn't, she wasn't as mobile, she would watch a lot of documentaries and she'd often watch documentaries about the Second World War and she'd write notes and, you know, I'd find notes in her belongings like um, things not allowed under Hitler would be the little title and then she'd list things she remembered um, and one I remember one of them was sit on benches, you know, and this was about and I remember her saying to me, you know, that she could no longer go to certain parts of Berlin where she used to, you know, swim or do... She was a runner, so she used to do a lot of athletics. And, and so she would just write things down all the time and it was almost like... I mean, I think that's... It's an act against annihilation in a way. It's like a way of saying, I am, I'm still here and, and this is my story and don't forget it. And so even though she always said to me, you've got to write, you've got to write you know, this story is yours to write. She was writing all the time as well. Yeah. There's another, another question over here when you're ready, Johnny. You mentioned the creative process, which I found, found fascinating to hear about how you don't know what's going to emerge by the end of the day. I think potters say the same thing about taking things out of the kiln. You also mentioned um, the relative who didn't want to see her family afterwards and how stunned you were and how inexplicable that seemed to you. And I'm wondering, with your writing process as you um, start to write this book, will you plan to investigate um, th through psychological research and, and experts why that might happen? Or is it something that's going to evolve for you as you write and this person comes alive? Mm. It's sort of a bit of both, I think. Um, like, I think I use, I don't know about you, but I think I often use research as a form of procrastination. <laughs> so if I'm stuck, I'll start, you know, reading about the particular area that I'm writing about. But eventually it has to 
organically emerge from the character and it has to be kind of um, embedded in that character for the character to seem real and to come to life. So it's, it's sort of constant moving between both the research um, and there is so much incredible research on the, the psychological aspects of survival and um, I mean lots of you will have read books about that and so I think it will be both. It, at some point you have to leave it behind and you do have to just stop looking at that material and, and let the character come to life and have their own sort of um, independent characteristics because otherwise it becomes a bit formulaic if you keep going back to that but it's, it's to me it's moving between the two and then at a certain point something comes together and and the characters kind of come alive and then you can let that go entirely but it's a bit of a crutch for a long time <laughs> for me anyway I, um, I can't I can't write with the internet on mm. I have to I have to I have to have a, a kind of switch to turn it off somewhere and set myself I was talking to John Birmingham one time he uses an actual program that he turns on that won't let him access the internet for given periods of time like he yeah. he sets a period of it's time called when freedom. It's so I mean <laughs> oh I need to research that I need to look at I need to look at Google Maps of the street of New York you know or something yeah. and then the emails come in and everything goes crazy and, you, and it's an hour before you get back to it. Yeah. There just has to be that way of, of getting away from Absolutely. outside information. You've got yeah. to allow the boredom in. I yeah. Think, yeah, yeah, yeah. And that's that strange creative process that out of nothing something can come. And yeah, sometimes if you're, I mean, you see that with, I see that with my kids. Like if I don't let them get bored, they'll never create anything because you're constantly entertaining them. But if you just leave them and tell them to find their own, you know, to, to kind of work their way through it, they'll mm. start to create something. I think it was Yates who came up with the term for it, which was negative capability, which was this, mm. uh, this idea that um, in, order, in order for something new to come into existence that does, that's not there, you have to go to a place of not knowing. You have mm. to go to a place where you're no longer in control and the human psyche is completely antipathetic to that. So there's no way any of us are prepared to willingly let ourselves do. I think it's why a lot of writers drink, to be perfectly honest. Yeah. I'm absolutely fascinated. Uh, Norman Dobson, um, creativity. I remember something, I'm talking about myself now, when I was a boy, I must have been four or five years of age, I was at a Sunday school, and the teacher, the lovely young woman, was telling us all about how the Lord created the world in six days and rested on the seventh. And I've always been a questioner, as Stephen knows. I always ask questions, most annoying. And I said, please, miss, what's created? And I remember this clearly. She said, to make something out of nothing. And that's what you said mm -hmm. today. Mm -hmm. And I, I love the metaphor of the dark room. When you dodge and you burn things in and it all comes out, it's, it's a kind of a magic. Yeah. And it is creative. Yeah. They're very creative. And where did you get that lovely word about nifty kitchen cabinets? I can, that's, your vocabulary is amazing. I can see those nifty kitchen cabinets. I'd like some of those. <laughs> I don't have any. <laughs> I, think we, I think we've come to the end of the evening. I would like to ask you all, please, to put your hands together for Marae Dukai. Thank you. Thank you for having me. You're most welcome. <laughs> thank you for coming all the way up here to Mulaney. And thank you once again to Elspeth and to Mireille. Thank you.